from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll. Here, we talk about serial killers, as well as delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. I come at this from a psychological perspective, so we look at past family members, childhood experiences, and other things that could have contributed to these people evolving into who they've become. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts like, share, and subscribe, it might just help our little community grow. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons, and it was originally going to be on both James Holmes and Nicholas Cruz, and whether or not we have any information about how their lives are now. But you guys know me, right? You know I'm going to give you the whole story. And as I began writing this, well, it just got longer and longer. So... Either grab a snack and settle in, or make sure you have your damn seatbelt on and get down the road. This is part one of Where Are They Now? So here we go. We will start with James Egan Holmes, born on December 13th, 1987 in San Diego, California. Much of his earlier life information comes from the book, quote, A Dark Night in Aurora, Inside James Holmes and the Colorado Mass Shootings, written by Dr. William Reed. Now, I relied on this book pretty heavily just for source material's sake. Since we are covering two people, we'll skip the history for this one. So, James was the first child to Robert and Arlene, as well as the first grandchild on both sides. And though we know him as James, his family nicknamed him Jimmy. Robert came from a successful family in that his father had been a West Point graduate and was a highly respected military man and civilian and had served in the Pacific during World War II. His mother had her own proud history as well. Robert had a twin sister, and they had been born in Istanbul as their father had been stationed there at the time. Arlene was born and raised in Southern California around Los Angeles. So Robert and Arlene met in college when both were attending Berkeley during the late 1970s. Arlene, at that time, was studying English, but she eventually moved to nursing. Robert had graduated from Stanford with a degree in mathematics and had gotten his master's at UCLA, completing his Ph.D. in statistics. They got married in Los Angeles moved to Washington, D.C. for Robert's job with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but they moved back to California and settled in San Diego. There's more to the family background, but bear with me. We will get to that. Suffice to say that Robert and Arlene's parents loved and adored their grandchildren, and the same was said about the children to their grandparents. 
After James turned five years old, in came a baby sister, Chris. Sources all say that little James felt loved, safe, and secure. There were hugs and kisses and all of that. As their children grew and began going to school, Robert and Arlene put importance on taking initiative, getting a solid education, and loving your family. It was said in the book that James had a very typical early childhood. Nothing I found indicated otherwise. The only thing that stood out was that he was a bit fearful and that he would sometimes be scared a bad person was going to break into their home and take him. Another fear was said to have only lasted a few months, but it was of a monster hammering nails into the walls beside his bed to purposefully poke him. He called them nail ghosts. But when he'd get up in the night and tell his parents that he was scared, they let him sleep with them or they soothed him back to sleep in his own bed. At around the age of seven, the family moved a few hundred miles up to a house they bought so that Robert could be near his mother, who was ill. Robert started working in statistical forecasting at the nearby Defense Manpower Data Center, largely on the Armed Forces Vocational Aptitude Battery, or AFAB, a test to determine qualifications for enlistment and military occupational specialties. So then Arlene, a registered nurse, raised the family and was eventually employed by Central Coast Visiting Nurses. Again, James started elementary school nearby, and overall, he seemed to flourish. He played outside with his new friends for hours. In 1996, when James was eight years old, his parents thought that, you know, perhaps he was not being as pro-social with the family, wanting to play Nintendo, and just overall cantankerous. They brought in a counselor who evaluated him and said, other than being pretty self-contained, that perhaps Robert and Arlene should make sure they are on the same page with parenting techniques and support each other. So you can kind of read in between the lines there. But after a short time, they said he had, quote, greatly improved and didn't seek the counselor out again. And even though every bit of that is still well within the range of normal, the counselor still billed it as oppositional defiant disorder, allegedly so their medical insurance would pay. And let me tell you, as someone who works with insurances, they look for any way not to pay. Trust me. Oh my God, don't get me started. So Dr. William Reed stated that James continued on and was always on the school honor roll. Teachers used words like intelligent, smiling, active, helpful, and sweet. And if you've ever seen pictures of young James, well, he certainly looks like all of that. Teachers also said he was quite popular. One even said he was, quote, a leader of the exceptional students, end quote. Amazing. The Holmes family also took regular family vacations together, taking James and his sister Chris to Disneyland, beachside, camping, skiing. I mean, really just absolute childhood heaven. From my research, it was painfully obvious that Robert and Arlene loved their children beyond measure. They took all of the steps and did all of the things so that their children were well-rounded, as we say here in the States. Arlene also ensured that they all ate dinner together. Robert coached James's soccer team. 
James stated in an interview that I watched with Dr. Reed that his father did not show favoritism or pick on him anymore compared to the other boys on the team. So fantastic. James had times where he was quiet, but Robert was the same. Two peas in a pod, really. Both were highly analytical, and Robert later admitted that though they were close, they didn't particularly talk about their feelings. It was also made quite apparent that James was a loving and attentive big brother to Chris. So the family moved back to San Diego when James was 12 years old, and that's when a change was beginning to be seen. He seemed to keep more to himself, you know, withdraw a bit. This is what others saw, but within him, the changes had actually begun when he was 10. Outwardly, well, he seemed fine, but in his mind, on occasion, and when he was calm and settled in, he noticed thoughts of nuclear bombs going off. He had enough insight to know that that wasn't particularly normal, but didn't see any harm either, and they didn't happen when he was with anyone else or in a stressful state, so he just let it go and he told no one. The move had exacerbated these changes, though. At the new house, he stayed in his room reading, sometimes in his closet even, or gaming, and didn't make friends immediately. His mother, of course, took note of this, and the book stated she introduced herself to neighbors, made note of the boys about James's age to park some friendships, but that didn't work. It was said she took him to a comic book store where kids were playing games together, but that didn't work either. He became quite solitary. But eventually, when the new school year started... He warmed up to the new environment, made some fellow nerdy friends, and they would play Magic the Gathering together. When James was 14, his parents were still concerned with his sort of disconnection and sought out counseling again. The counselor said he was just having adjustment issues from the move. Only, it was much worse than that. He all of a sudden couldn't seem to talk on the phone, even with Arlene's coaching and help. The Holmes family had been fairly religious and attended church, but James began to feel indifferent about the family's beliefs. An interview with Dr. Reed that I listened to, James specifically stated that while he did believe in God, he thought God was everything, everywhere, all around us. How very Gospel of Thomas of him, I must say. By high school, those strange, intrusive thoughts began to get worse. The nuclear bombs evolved into, quote, atomic blasts and nuclear winters. That then evolved into mentally picturing dead or dying people who were that way by his own hands. He later told Dr. Reed that his thoughts weren't as simple as hating anyone. He didn't hate anyone. It was just generalized thoughts of killing people. He said he wasn't bullied, that there was no specific target or anything like that. James was also self-aware enough that he could tell his awkwardness made others around him feel awkward, and side note, I certainly can relate to that. His thoughts went from that to, what if someone was killed? But he also became afraid that if he ever let his anger get out of control, it would be very bad for everyone around him. This then morphed into a sort of anger at his mother that he couldn't shake, Then that morphed into when he would be in an uncomfortable situation, he would literally freeze. No speaking, 
no movement, and looking back later, James would say that some of the earliest phrases he couldn't remember, it's as if his mind just stopped. Interesting. That then evolved into thoughts, especially when he was frozen, of an independently working saw like a chainsaw dismembering people. And yet, extreme pop-up thoughts like this aren't completely unheard of in the adolescent mind. Perhaps not terribly common, but still not beyond the realm of normal. I know my thoughts around this age weren't a whole lot better. It was his anxiety finding some control and release. In a way, it made him feel, well, you know, safer. In a way, it was him getting rid of the perceived threat in his fight or flight or really his freeze. James became painfully aware that he was at least different. Sometime in high school, James was really, quote, paralyzed by a fear of people. Again, not anyone specific, just in general. And his intrusive thoughts about hurting people, again, only happened when he wasn't busy. If he was working on school or playing sports or just doing any other activity, he did not have those thoughts. It was at this time that James became quite interested in the human mind and how it worked in hopes of self-diagnosing, which is kind of part of why I got into it as well, and we all know it's a big no-no. And the rub in all of this is that he didn't talk about it to anyone. From the outside, he looked like a perfectly normal, albeit introverted, anxious, nerdy teen. With regards to girls, they found him pretty attractive, and if a girl would act interested or try to get him to ask them out, he told them no. Now, Dr. Reed wrote in his book that James was not gay, and I heard James specifically say that he was not in the interview. But James said that he just really wasn't interested, so this makes me think that perhaps he was asexual. But I don't know. That's something to explore. But during his senior year, with his basically 4.0 perfect grade point average, he applied for several colleges and was apparently accepted to every single one. He chose the University of California, Riverside, with honors and a full ride. So also during his senior year, he won a position in a highly competitive summer internship program at San Diego Miramar College. The book said, quote, After a week of Miramar Science Boot Camp to prepare him for laboratory work, he spent seven weeks in Dr. Terence Shiznowski's, I hope I pronounced that right, his computational neurobiology lab at the San Diego Salk Institute. His main job, supervised by a graduate student named John Jacobson, was writing computer code for an experiment related to humans' perception of time, end quote. So, this is as good as any a place to stop and do a little analysis of his childhood. So guys, at face value, we see a boy who had an absolutely idyllic childhood, a childhood most of us could never conceive of, Adoring parents, positive family time spent together, extended family happily in the picture, cousins, grandparents. His parents encouraged him and supported him, took part in outside activities, and he had every single opportunity. We heard zero instances of bullying, no abuse or neglect on any level, period. No head trauma, nothing. 
If I hadn't told you about his intrusive thoughts or the heightened anxiety, you guys would be so confused at this point, like, um, Alyssa, where's the drama, the blood and the guts? Well, kids, it was there, only just in his mind, and unfortunately, he told no one. From quite a young age, James was fearful, fearful of monsters hammering nails into the walls from within and poking him or him being kidnapped. If you look at this by itself, it seems pretty harmless. I dreamed of a Hulk-like monster chasing me around my childhood living room, and I had to hide behind the couch. It's not uncommon at all to be scared as a young child. Nightmares are common. But then you look to see if that fearfulness dissipates later, and for James, it didn't. It just continued to get worse. His parents, bless them, provided counseling and did what they could to help. Brilliant. Love to hear it. But the move back down to San Diego seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. He had begun seeing violent images in his mind just a bit before, but the move solidified it, and his quiet time thoughts became increasingly disturbing. So, he withdrew into books, comic books, but he was also highly analytical like his father, and when we reflect on his seemingly high intelligence, scoring 123 on an IQ test, gifted really and nerdy, introverted nature, one might think him on the autism spectrum. According to the Mayo Clinic, quote, Autism spectrum disorder is a condition related to brain development that impacts how a person perceives and socializes with others, causing problems in social interaction and communication. The disorder also includes limited and repetitive patterns of behavior. The term spectrum in autism spectrum disorder refers to the wide range of symptoms and severity. Autism spectrum disorder includes conditions that were previously considered separate. Autism, Asperger's syndrome, childhood, disintegrative disorder, and an unspecified form of pervasive development disorder. Some people still use the term Asperger's syndrome, which is generally thought to be at the mild end of autism spectrum disorder. And that's the one that I kind of was leaning towards when it came to James. Autism spectrum disorder begins in early childhood and eventually causes problems functioning in society, socially, in school, and at work, for example. Often children show symptoms of autism within the first year. A small number of children appear to develop normally in the first year and then go through a period of regression between 18 and 24 months of age when they develop autism symptoms. And if you guys remember, he did go through a short phase of regression when his mother hired the first counselor. There is, you know, a lot to autism and we have this finite time together. So the takeaway is that some children with autism spectrum disorder have difficulty learning and some have signs of lower than normal intelligence. But some children with the disorder have normal to high intelligence. They learn quickly, yet have trouble communicating and applying what they know in everyday life and adjusting to social situations. So again, I'm not saying James was on the autism spectrum, but I think that it at least bears mention. Another possibility is schizoid personality disorder, which is a condition where a person shows very little, if any, interest and ability to form relationships with other people. It's very hard for the person to express a full range of emotions. 
If someone has schizoid personality disorder, they may be seen as keeping to themselves or rejecting others. They may not be interested in or able to form close friendships or romantic relationships, and because they do not tend to show emotion, it may appear that they do not care about others or what's going on around them. Some symptoms of schizoid personality disorder are similar to autism spectrum disorder, other personality disorders, especially avoidant personality disorder, and early symptoms of schizophrenia. Symptoms include wanting to be alone, not wanting to or actually have close relationships with others, feeling little to no desire for sexual relationships, taking little or no pleasure in some activities, and finding it hard to express emotions and react. They may lack humor and seem cold and distant. Schizoid personality disorder most often begins when a person is a young adult, but some symptoms might be noticed during childhood. These symptoms may make it hard to do well in school, at work, in social situations, or in other areas of life. But the person may do well if the job can be done by mostly working alone. Well, that's hitting kind of home. So let's also address the intrusive thoughts, right? Every kid worries from time to time. It's completely normal. For some kids, worries aren't so easy to talk about. A troubling thought or mental image might pop up out of nowhere when a child isn't expecting it. Their worries may be repetitive and feel very difficult to control. Often these thoughts are really scary and upsetting. They can be dark, violent, or about a taboo subject. These kinds of worries are called intrusive thoughts. Kids don't want to be thinking these things and know that they would never act on the thoughts they're having. So why do they keep happening? Well, intrusive thoughts are ego dystonic. This is therapy jargon that means a person doesn't agree with the thoughts and it may not even feel like the thoughts are really belonging to them. Intrusive thoughts include imagery that is violent, sexual, or feels wrong to that child. Other times, worries about worst case scenarios might come up again and again. They aren't things that kids would choose to think about, and they are often the opposite of what a child would do or hope for. So kids with intrusive thoughts may feel distressed, anxious, or ashamed. They may not understand why the thoughts are happening, but can guess that not everyone is bothered by their thinking in this way. Because the thoughts feel out of control, children may dread having more and try to avoid them. Intrusive thoughts are sometimes a symptom of OCD, which can show up as early as the age of 7 or 8, and as late as the teens or early 20s. So this jives with James in that his began at the age of 10. Children who are struggling with repeated, ongoing intrusive thoughts can't brush them off so easily. In these cases, a child may be dealing with a mental health problem that needs attention. OCD and PTSD are two common mental health conditions that can cause children to have intrusive thoughts. But we know James wouldn't have had PTSD. So kids with OCD deal with repeated thoughts, worries, or mental pictures that upset or scare them. Kids are bothered by these worries and feel pushed to do something to make the worry go away or prevent something bad from happening. This creates a cycle of repeated worries and repeated behaviors called obsessions and compulsions that take up a lot of time and add even more stress. 
This sounds okayish, but again, he really didn't have compulsions or repeat any behaviors, thinking it would have, you know, staved off the thoughts. They only happened when he was still and not immersed in activities. It would seem he has symptoms of all of these issues, but I wouldn't say that he actually had all three. Could he? Absolutely, there is some overlay with these things, but, you know, I don't know. Also, he doesn't fit into the criteria for early-onset schizophrenia, because I know someone will ask. But no matter, because the accumulation of what was going on with him was troubling and needed to be addressed. So let's get back into it. Where we left off, James had won a highly coveted and competitive summer internship at San Diego Miramar College the summer before college started. He was videoed doing a presentation called, quote, Temporal Illusions, and in the video, to the untrained eye, well, he looks perfectly normal. But what I immediately zeroed in on was his eyes darting around a bit. He reaches back and touches his collar. It is obvious, at least to me, that he is super uncomfortable. But again, if you didn't know who he was or what he would later do, it would look like a teenager who was just anxious about giving a presentation to a room of people. But it's something in his eyes. Moving on. James started college in the fall of 2006. He later said that he entered college feeling rather nihilistic, saying that because everyone suffers, everyone should just die, though he understood that was not realistic. He lived on campus with other honor students and remembered being happy with dorm life. It was said he rarely called or checked in with his family, though he did go home for summers and holidays. He also had no real interest in social media. But while at school, he befriended like-minded people and he played video games. He ate with the science geeks at the cafeteria. That would have been me. And a couple of closer pals said that he was most assuredly not aggressive. He never spoke of any disturbing thoughts and didn't even enjoy first-person shooter games. He still had the intrusive violent thoughts and probably the ominous fantasies that were prominent earlier, but he could usually keep them away or control them by occupying his mind with studying and video games. All seemed well. I also find it important to tell you that with young children, he actually seemed more at ease. He was a camp counselor to children between the ages of 8 and 12, and he seemed to, again, be pretty well at ease with them. So from Dr. Reed's book, quote, he had a cumulative grade point average of just under 4.0 in the top 1% of UC Riverside graduates. He was a Regents Scholar, a Dean's Fellow, and a member of Phi Beta Kappa. His reference letters were strong. One read in part, quote, a very effective group leader brings a great amount of intellectual and emotional maturity into the classroom, end quote. His GRE scores were very good as well. Students also have to write a personal essay to get into graduate school, and this is where James actually didn't excel. The book went on to say, quote, They were oddly worded, referring, for example, to using his clairvoyance to solve difficult problems. He sometimes invoked the infinite vastness of indefinite knowledge or called upon our own minds as the primary source of all things. Interesting. 
In 2010, James graduated with a bachelor's degree and decided to pursue a graduate degree in neuroscience from the University of Colorado and moved to Aurora, next to Denver. His interviewers seemed to agree that his grades and knowledge were top tier, but he seemed disinterested, socially awkward, and, well, quirky. James wanted to study the differences between what he called normal people and people that are different because he wanted to learn about himself. And quite frankly, that was, like I said, a big part of it for me too. His violent, intrusive thoughts were still there, make no mistake, but the intensity of studying in college life kept his mind busy and therefore kept the thoughts fairly under control but it is believed that he was still deteriorating steadily and that he was experiencing delusions. Beginning in graduate school, Holmes would see shadows and, quote, flickers out the corner of his eyes, which would fight each other with firearms and other weapons. His shadow people were fighting each other. He then got an off-campus, one-bedroom student apartment, he created a dating profile on Match.com as he decided it was time to integrate more with his peers. On the dating profile, he labeled himself as religiously agnostic. But he did sort of begin to integrate with his peers, hanging out with a few people, going to the movie theater in Aurora, mm-hmm, and playing strategy games. His friends said he rarely drank, rarely, and was never drunk, and possibly smoked some weed maybe a few times. He and his small circle went hiking, but one girl caught his eye, named Gargi. She could tell that he was terribly shy, so she took the initiative and invited him to a horror movie festival. Now that's something even I would leave my cave for. They got along great got together quite a bit, and she was apparently his first and only sexual partner, again, according to the book. School started to look less like a priority for James, though, according to his lab partners, and they said he didn't have a great work ethic and was often late coming back from lunch. He isolated himself most of the time. But one of his friends liked to go shooting, and they went gun shopping. The friend said James didn't really seem interested in guns. By early 2012, the text messages that James shared with a friend began to show signs of a heavier mental decline. He joked about him and the friend killing each other. He began isolating more and more. And again, the violent, intrusive thoughts were beginning to manifest in his perceived real life. One of his texts with his friend was an admission that James was having psychotic delusions, though he reiterated that he did not have auditory hallucinations. His friend really didn't know how to respond to that, and James would not elaborate on what the hallucinations were. By the end of February 2012... Okay, his girlfriend broke things off with him. Her reasons were that he didn't want to have deep intellectual conversations, that he had told bad jokes and poor taste, and she was a little concerned over the violent topics of what conversations they had. But, of course, his reasoning was that her family was from, I think, the Middle East and that they didn't want her to be dating an American. And then his visual hallucinations of shadows began to dance, sometimes juggling guns, other times juggling human heads. 
but once he diverted his attentions elsewhere, well, they would disappear. Then he and Gargi sparked up a sexual relationship again, but it remained just that. But she did encourage him to at least seek out a counselor, which he did. James went to a campus counselor and told her that his experiences of anxiety when having to speak to other people were getting bad and that he felt he had an issue with pulling his hair, which is very much giving trichotillomania, and that, you know, overall he just didn't trust other people. The source material didn't seem firm on this, but this particular counselor diagnosed him with OCD and referred him to another therapist with an email that said, quote, he is the most anxious guy I have ever seen and has symptoms of OCD. But most concerning is that he has thoughts of killing people, though I do not think he is dangerous. He said he did not want to tell me everything he was experiencing as I might have to report, end quote. In late March, he had his first session with the new therapist. He reiterated his concerns, and she noted he had difficulty keeping eye contact, being concerned that his thinking was nearing psychosis, answering her questions with short answers and odd thought processes. He told her that the breakup and more superficial relationship has aggravated his symptoms. He told her that, quote, one solution to his biological problem would be to eliminate it with homicide, adding vaguely that since he couldn't kill everyone, that wouldn't be an effective solution, end quote. Now, she noted that he had not given her the impression that he had actual plans to kill, no specific people or group in mind, of course, and he hadn't indicated thoughts of, you know, unaliving himself. She labeled him not a danger, but needed further evaluation. Quote, Diagnosis included OCD and social phobia with a possibility of schizoid personality disorder, a chronic and pervasive pattern of detachment from social relationships and of restricted emotional expression, end quote. She prescribed him meds for anxiety and depression and decided to hold off on antipsychotics until further assessment. Now, kids, listen. I get it. I know. Antipsychotics, though, that medication is super heavy, heavy stuff. Under normal circumstances, not wanting to potentially over-medicate your patient is a good thing. None of us want to be over-medicated, right? So let's suspend some of the judgment. Taken from the book, here is one of the text sessions between him and his ex-girlfriend, now friend with benefits, Gargi. So James says, human capital. Some people may make a million dollars, others a hundred thousand, but life is priceless. You take away human life and your human capital is limitless. Gargi said, it depends on the perspective. What would you do with the human capital? James said, have a more meaningful life, because if there is meaning to life, and if you take that away from other people, you have prevented their purpose. Gargi said, someone else will fulfill the purpose then. It doesn't help you. It may satisfy you, but it doesn't help you fulfill your purpose. James said, it still makes my life more meaningful, increasing my human capital by taking theirs. Gargi said, I don't understand the concept of human capital. I don't see how it is useful. It is not being incorporated into you. You are just taking away a life. That seems to be like destruction. James replied, I don't believe there's absolute good and evil. 
Gargi said, if you want to kill people, why don't you kill me and Ben and other people who are around you and have wronged you? James said, I would be caught and could not kill more people. I would also lose the rest of my life. That's why I won't kill until my life is nearly over. Your meaning of life doesn't address the meaning of death. Life came into being and ever since has been a cancer upon death. Gargi said, I don't understand the purpose of your view, but that could just be because I don't think the way you do. James said, were we not dead before we were alive? I am not inherently evil, Gargi. My outlook on destroying life is plan B. I also found a purpose for good. Gargi said, I know you are not inherently evil. What is your purpose for good? James said, you sure you want to know? So Gargi suggested that he tell his therapist about his thoughts and he reassured her that he was. James admitted to another friend he was having psychotic delusions. His next appointment with the therapist was noted as him being even more reserved and, quote, extremely withholding, and he was having a very hard time making or maintaining eye contact. But school was still good, and he began texting with other girls, and they quickly started spending some time together. His next therapy appointment, he said the meds were working okay-ish, but he was still having thoughts of killing people, among other things he would not divulge to the doctor. When she deflected a question from him regarding her philosophy about life, he became only slightly agitated, and he said, quote, Are you just a pill pusher? After this appointment, she noted, quote, James had a psychotic level of thinking, guarded, paranoid, hostile thoughts he won't elaborate on, very tentative therapeutic relationship, end quote. This is when she officially diagnosed him with schizotypal personality disorder. So here we are in 2012, okay? So the first week of May, James begins buying weapons online, such as a taser and a large knife. He then bought some tear gas and a fancy gas mask. He also bought a handgun for, quote, the mission, as he was now calling it. The mission was James's plan to kill as many people as he possibly could, as it was, quote, necessary to do what is in my best interest, end quote. Part and parcel to his ever-declining mental state was the final and official breakup with Gargi. So his schooling was in decline because he was becoming singularly focused on his mission as he bought a shotgun. The next two therapy sessions brought in another doctor to evaluate him. He stated that he was in the throes of playing Diablo 3, a video game, and that he was not studying for his end-of-year exams. You know, he had decided to let fate choose whether or not he passed. The second doctor suggested antipsychotic medication, and side note, Dr. Reed states in the book that if they had tried to involuntarily admit him into a psychiatric hospital, a judge would most likely have prevented that from happening. And then James bought more weapons. So James took his end-of-year oral exam without studying and stayed focused on his mission of killing as many people as he could and then either get put away or killed in the process. He purchased a rifle. He was then notified that he had failed his exam but was offered to take it again and he declined. It was then that he officially dropped out. His final therapy session was on June 11th. 
He later said that he had hoped the doctors, both of them, would be able to tell just how badly he needed help. But one must remember, he refused to elaborate on many things, and they are not psychic. Therapists are not psychic. They are only as good as the information you give them and the body language that you're presenting and so on. But if he kept everything quiet and hidden, how are they supposed to know? Right? So, final diagnosis, schizoid personality disorder, autism spectrum disorder, and schizophreniform disorder. And that one was kind of a newer to me. So schizophreniform disorder is a psychotic disorder, like schizophrenia, that affects how you act, think, relate to others, express emotions, and perceive reality. Unlike schizophrenia, it lasts one to six months instead of the rest of your life. It is a serious psychotic disorder that may be caused by genetics, brain chemistry, or environmental factors. And so, final notes from his therapist. Quote, his long-standing fantasies of killing as many people as possible, his caginess in discussing any details regarding methods, targets, timing, his refusal to give us permission to contact anyone who could give collateral info or speak on his behalf, the unclear timeline of his mental health status and past history. Has he always been this odd and angry, or is this new, suggesting a psychotic break, substance-related psychosis, or medical illness? End quote. But let's not mistake it, okay? She was legitimately concerned. Her concerns led her to break doctor-patient confidentiality and activated a threat assessment team and spoke with some of his professors who stated they had heard of no threats. Other people she contacted told her he was very anxious and seemed uninterested in his studies as of late. But he had no criminal record and no weapon permits, and of course no one was aware of the fact that he had purchased weapons, right? So what I found interesting is that the doctor then contacted Arlene, James's mother, and asked about him. Arlene was, quote, concerned but not entirely surprised, end quote, stating he had kind of always been this way and more markedly so after moving back to San Diego. Arlene stated she had always been concerned about James, but she had never seen him be violent. That was a fact. The doctor then noted again, quoting from the book, Quote, James appears to be intermittently functioning at a psychotic level. He may be shifting insidiously into a frank psychotic disorder such as schizophrenia, though does not have the more rapid worsening of function typical of most psychotic breaks. His fear-slash-hatred of humans has markedly impaired him, does not currently meet criteria for a mental health hold. He is not gravely disabled. He has no evidence of suicidal ideation long-standing homicidal ideation, but denies any specific targets, and there is no current evidence that he is angry at the grad school or anyone else for his failure. He has made many hostile remarks to myself and Dr. Feinstein, but no threats, no evidence of past violent acts, end quote. So I think that she did her due diligence. I think that she ticked the boxes. You know, she looked at criteria and she did the very best that she could with what she was going to be able to do. Because he'd not made any specific threats or had any kind of plan set in place, there was no way she was going to get an involuntary hold. 
So the sort of short and skinny is that he was seen by three different people who evaluated his threat. Again, involuntary holds are incredibly difficult and very legal and on and on. This was not a cut and dry case at all. There are a lot of rules and patients' rights and so on and so on. So other professionals have stated these clinicians did their best with what they were able to do. So James deleted the friends he had made at graduate school from his phone. He later said being alone was more comfortable, and besides, he thought it best they not be friends with a murderer. He started writing and drawing in a notebook, which you can see online, and it shows some of his personal thoughts and behaviors just weeks before the shootings, and then mailed it to one of his therapists just hours before he went on his, quote, mission. June 13th, he spent well over $1,000 on ammo. Twelve days later, he applied for membership at a gun range, but interestingly, he was turned down. It was said that the owner called him several times, and James left him a voicemail using the Joker voices, how they described it in the source material, and the guy said, never let this boy in. James also ordered black contact lenses that were bigger around than the iris. So sclera lenses, I think. Someone will correct me, I'm sure. But they were bigger around than the actual color of his eye. And he called them his possession lenses. And once received, he took photos of himself wearing them while holding his weapons. On June 28th, he ordered even more ammunition and a fancy combat helmet. The very next day, he visited the Century 16 Cinema and took pictures of the inside with his phone. On July 1st, security footage of his activities that day show that he had bleached his hair and dyed it bright orange, his natural hair color being very, very dark brown. Another interesting thing that my little nerd brain caught on to is that people are trying to compare him to the Joker from Batman, but what color is Joker's hair? I'll give you a hint, it's not orange. That's right, it's green. Moving on. Another place he went into, it was observed by an employee in one particular store that he seemed to be holding his eyes more wide open than natural. The next day, he purchased more weapons online. Because you see, kids, people will always be able to get guns, whether they are illegal or not. It's not right, but it is the what is. We can't stop them any more than we've been able to stop online predators distributing disgusting pieces of media involving children. So on July 2nd, he went shooting at a gun range. July 3rd, he picked up 170 pounds, not rounds, pounds of ammunition from FedEx. He then went home and ordered even more weapons-related stuff. The evening of July 4th, Arlene called and talked to her son for the last time before he was arrested. She and his father had been made aware that he had dropped out of graduate school, and they were obviously concerned. They offered to pay for any extended therapy he might need and said they just wanted to support him and that they loved him. July 7th, he wrote that he would choose his targets randomly and that he wanted to commit mass murder rather than be a bomber or a serial killer because it would cause the most fatalities. He said he had no fear of the consequences and figured his chances of being caught were about 99%. 
he decided on the midnight showing of Batman The Dark Knight Rises. James bought a ticket early so he'd be able to position himself favorably in the theater. He wrote in his little notebook that if he performed his mission, if he performed this act, it would relieve him of his depression and then perhaps he wouldn't unalive himself. He was at this point completely obsessed with completing his mission. July 19th, 2012, just before he left to complete his, quote, mission, he actually phoned a crisis hotline as a last-ditch effort for someone to stop him from what he was about to do. Unfortunately, the call dropped after a short time. It just disconnected. It happens to everybody. James set a bunch of booby traps in his apartment, then drove to the movie theater. He went inside, exited out of an exit door down kind of in the front off to the side and left it propped open ever so slightly. He went and got his cache of weapons and re-entered the theater. He then set off several tear gas and smoke bombs and began shooting into the crowd. When it was said and done, he had killed 12 people, including small children, and injured 70 others. And Much love and respect to the survivors who are still having to live with permanent, permanent disabilities from what he had done to them. So James then walked back out of the theater and to his vehicle where he was promptly arrested. He did not resist and he was described as calm and cooperative. But as he sat in the back of that police car, picture it. It was said that he was utterly fascinated with watching everything happening around him during the aftermath. He was at least nice enough to warn the officers that his apartment was booby-trapped. So, in summation, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to 12 life sentences in prison without the chance of parole. It is said that he is currently housed at USP Allenwood in Pennsylvania. As of this recording, he is at a heightened security federal prison and kept away from other prisoners because he seems to be under significant threat of violence from the other prisoners, and he has been attacked by one in the past. And as much as I tried to find information, there really is very little known about his day-to-day prison activities. There doesn't seem to be any information specifically pointing toward what he does with his time while in prison. So, to the analysis, at least my opinion, obviously not a PhD in this realm, but this is my informed, somewhat educated opinion, right? I find it important to tell you that there is a history of mental illness in his family. There were extended family members who were alcoholics or had minor emotional problems, Three others were diagnosed with mental health issues that required hospitalization. James's aunt, his father's twin, right, apparently developed serious mental illness early and had been mentally disabled from a young age, suspected to be schizophrenic. Robert's father had also suffered with some form of psychiatric issues his whole life, but became more severe later in life. He was actually once admitted to the Monterey Peninsula Community Hospital for, quote, disabling obsessive-compulsive disorder. And then on Arlene's side, 
Her father had been hospitalized during his middle age for depression and psychosis, and he ultimately died when James was only four years old. So we see here that there is some troubling mental illness in the family tree. According to earlypsychosis.ca, quote, it has been known for a very long time that psychosis can seem to run in families, end quote. And there's a whole thing with this that would take entirely too much time to explain. So if you want a true crime science episode on psychosis or schizophrenia, heritability, and so on, just let me know. But the consensus is that it does run in families. James is highly, highly intelligent, as are both of his parents and on back. Is there a correlation between very high intelligence and severe mental illness? Well, that's complicated, but isn't everything with the human mind? According to the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology, quote, the present study provides robust evidence that highly intelligent individuals do not have more mental health disorders than the average population. High intelligence even appears as a protective factor for general anxiety and PTSD. End quote. Sounds good, right? But an article from Science Direct is titled, quote, High Intelligence, a Risk Factor or Psychological and Physiological Overexcitabilities, end quote. So we see two great sources speaking from both sides of this question. Speaking with an internal source about this myself, right? So we both agree that it is more correlation than causation. I believe that one does not directly cause the other, but there are undeniable correlations between the two. You see, we see this with people like Ted Kaczynski and John Nash, who was the subject behind the movie A Beautiful Mind, which is a fantastic movie, by the way, I recommend it. Both men were absolutely brilliant in mathematics, understanding things far beyond anything we could ever even comprehend. One murdered people with bombs, the other never hurt anyone and seemingly nearly cured himself. It's super curious. James is just another example of how we sit and think we might be able to, you know, suss out dangerous people based on preconceived notions of genetics and environmental factors, the old nature versus nurture debate. But there is no foolproof way to predict who is mentally unstable and a harm to no one and who is mentally unstable and a danger to everyone. Some have horrific childhoods and never even entertain the notion of hurting anyone and others, like James, who had the most idyllic childhood one could have ever hoped for, with the most involved and loving parents you could imagine, and still go on to hurt so many people. He had all the opportunities. He sought out help. He went to therapy. They attempted to help him as much as they medically and legally could, and this still happened. So, tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment or DM me on Instagram, at Serial underscore Killing. You can also come join us at the Facebook, uh, it's Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook that was created by a friend of mine. You can come there and join the discussion about things we talk about, but either way, I'd love to know what you think about this case. And as always, thank you so much, guys, for listening. 
because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. And now I'm going to start working on part two, Nicholas Cruz. Have a fantastic day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.